The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians, and we've made it all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 13, probably the most famous chapter in 1 Corinthians. I think it's helpful, though, for us to study 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of the letter, because it's often taken out and sort of plastered on walls and quoted at weddings, but it's given to the church. This is a word for us. The Holy Spirit desires to speak to us today from 1 Corinthians 13, and we pray that we would be willing to listen. I'm going to read the first three verses, and I want to invite you to stand once again in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we... We come to you, and Lord, we know that the only reason that what we're doing today has any meaning is because your Spirit infuses it, because your Spirit is with us and in us, in your Word, in our hearts, guiding us, leading us to believe, to hope, and yes, to love We pray that you would do that even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I usually get started with sermon preparation on Tuesday morning. I like to have one day a week where I'm not thinking about preaching. And that day is Monday. And so Tuesday morning is is when I first begin to study for the sermon. And this past Monday night was a huge, huge comeback win for the Braves. We're not going to talk about what happened after that. But Monday night was really special. My family, the Braves had no hope for like seven innings, and then they came back, and it was just one of those games for the ages. Um, And so I was excited. And so as I sat down Tuesday morning to begin studying 1 Corinthians 13, before I did that, I thought to myself, yeah, but I need to get on Twitter and just kind of relive the game. You know, I watched the highlights and kind of 
you know, bask in the glory of this victory. And so I did. I opened up my computer, and I got on Twitter, and I, and I began to see some, some highlights of the Braves game and some commentary about it. But I also saw some other things, you know, because when you get on something like Twitter, you don't have control over the algorithm. And as I began looking for Braves highlights, I began to see images and videos and read accounts and stories as the full details began to come out of what Hamas terrorists, what they did in Israel over the weekend of their assaulting and murdering and raping innocent people beheading children, civilians, intentionally targeting people who would have no idea they were coming and had no way to defend themselves. There is no other way to describe what they did other than pure wickedness of Satan. And all of the verbal gymnastics that you see going on culturally to try to justify their actions, church, listen to me. As Christians, we must be willing to look at evil and call it evil. Call it what it is. And as I kept scrolling through my Twitter feed, my whole perspective changed. And then I began to see reports of student rallies on college campuses in America of students in our nation rallying to celebrate the terrorists. A rally in Sydney, Australia, where the crowd began to chant, gas the Jews. So that, that was the backdrop for my beginning to study the greatest poem on love that's ever been written. That was the backdrop. I had a conversation shortly after this with a person that I know. As we began to discuss world events and kind of what was happening, and this person said to me, you know, at the end of the day, I really believe that the goodness in man is going to prevail. That, you know, our goodness as a human species is just going to triumph over evil. And I said to him, have you watched the videos? Have you read the stories? Are you aware of what is happening in our world? Are you even aware of your own heart Listen, church, our hope is not that there is some speck of goodness left in humanity that is somehow going to win the day. That does not exist. 
There is no goodness in our hearts that is going to take over and bring about world peace. That is not what we are hoping in. That is not why we gather to worship on Sunday. Our hope is that the God of this universe has looked down upon this world and the wickedness that we have created from our own sinful heart and from outside of humanity, He has entered in and become a human so that He could save us. That's our hope. Our hope is Christ. We are not placing our hope in some notion of the goodness of people because that just doesn't exist. The chapter on love is in our Bibles because the Bible tells us that before this, the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is Jesus. Jesus is our hope. It's because of Jesus, listen, and only because of Jesus that we have confidence that death and brutality and hatred and war will not, end at the, will not win at the end of the day. It's only because of Jesus. There's no other reason. There's not going to be some powerful world peace organization. NATO is not going to be able to get everybody to get along. The reason is because none of those organizations can change what is fundamentally wrong with human beings, and that is our hearts. It is only the gospel that can take a selfish, wicked heart that is turned in on itself and redeem it and make it a heart that wants to love. And only Jesus can do that. Requires a supernatural work for the heart to be changed. The biblical call to love is not some vague platitude for humanity to get along and sing kumbaya. It is God's call for His people to bear witness to the gospel by loving each other. That's the call. Romans 5.8, we read it earlier in the service, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love invaded the wickedness of our world. Love has come down to change us, to save us, to forgive us, to justify us, to sanctify us, to, to bring us into eternal life, to make us members of God's own family, to let us inherit the kingdom of God forever. Love has done all of that. We have not deserved it. We have not earned it. We have done nothing to make any of that happen. It is all because of the mercy of a sovereign God. And... Because of his love, because Christ died for us when we were still sinners, and only because of that, we are called to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourself. It is God's love that makes our love possible. It is God who loves first. We do not love because we are just naturally loving people. No, we are naturally selfish people. We love because of God's love first. 
This is what Jesus taught us. This is all over the Bible. And so I honestly could stand up here for, for all morning and just pick verses to make these points, but I'll pick only one. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How is the world going to make sense of a God who loves them? We are to provide a living picture of that in the way that we love one another, in the way that we are willing to lay our lives down for one another. And that is why 1 Corinthians 13 is in the Bible. Because Paul is teaching us that our love is our most distinguishing characteristic church. The kind of love that we are called to have is supernatural, and it is unlike anything else that the world calls love. Taylor Swift has no idea what this love looks like. It is the trait that most clearly reveals the divine origin of our hope. It is this love that testifies most clearly to the grace of the gospel because people in our sin, we don't love automatically and naturally. It's why Paul so opposes what's happening in this church in Corinth because this church is not exhibiting love. This church is selfish. They are divided. They are looking down upon one another. They are treating people in the congregation wrongly. And Paul says, you, you can't do that. That's why this chapter's in the Bible. And church, it's why we, Ashland Community Church, must be committed above all else to love. To love. So let's look at the, the, the passage, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 3. Love's indispensability. I had to spell check that one to get it on the board, but that's a, that's a tough one. It loves indispensability. You know what, it, what that means, right? You, something is indispensable, you can't do without it. You know, if, you're, if you're playing baseball, you can't play baseball without a bat. The bat is indispensable to playing baseball. You have to have it. You're not going to hit it with your hand. Love is indispensable, Paul says. You can't live without it. If you are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what else you have, what other gifts you have, if you don't have love, you don't have anything. And that's what he says. He, in fact, he names a bunch of very impressive practices. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I do not know what the tongues of angels might sound like, but... Apparently it exists. Paul says, even if you speak in the tongues of angels, but if you don't have love, he says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever had a child in your home learning to play a musical instrument? I got one for you. Have you ever had five children simultaneously with five violins trying to learn? No, not what Rachel was doing up here earlier. I'm talking about screeching, like take Edward Scissorhands and like run it down a chalkboard. Y'all get the Edward Scissorhand reference? Like, yeah, you got to be old if you know that movie. That's Johnny Depp in his prime. That is what it was like to me. 
And I don't like that kind of thing, honestly. I like order. I love 1 Corinthians, by the way, because Paul likes order too. And he, he's, he's taming all the chaos. And I'm like, yes, Paul, amen. Calm them down. Keep it orderly. Paul says, if you have these gifts of being able to speak the words of God, and yet you don't have love, it is just noise. It is just noise. And he keeps going. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, we love mysteries. We love knowledge. We love theology. We love being able to articulate the fine points of what's really going on in the world, right? We love to read books. We love to, to stick our chest out and pride ourselves on all the knowledge that we've accumulated over our lives. And Paul says, it doesn't matter what degrees are hanging on your wall. It doesn't matter how good of a preacher you are. It doesn't matter how many people come to your Sunday school class. If you don't have love, it is nothing. It's nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. But before that, he says, even if I have all faith. You know, Jesus had said, if you, if you have faith, you can move mountains. And Paul's referring to that in verse 2. But have not love, I am nothing. The point is that you can have gifts and characteristics other than love. In fact, you have to have gifts and characteristics other than love. Paul is not saying that faith's not important. He's not saying that being able to proclaim the Word of God is not important. He is not saying that that being willing to deliver over your body to be burned in service to the gospel, that that's not a good thing. These are actually really good things. The point that Paul is making is that the usefulness of any other gift depends upon love. Love isn't the only thing you need, but nothing else matters without it. That's the point. It is the one indispensable ingredient. Like some of you drink coffee, coffee, and it's really just sugar and milk and like maybe a splash of coffee. And you call that coffee. You have to have coffee to have coffee. Like you can't, you can't call something else coffee. Love is, it's, it's got to be in, in the mix. It's got to be permeating the whole. It, it's got to be a part of everything else we do. And so, so really what, Paul's doing, Paul, what Paul is doing here is he's attacking two different issues, I think. And, and they're both applicable to us. One of the issues is that sometimes we perform the right action for the wrong reason. And so, so honestly, you know, I often, I, I do this experiment with my middle schoolers that I teach sometimes, and I, I, usually once a year I'll say, so... And I'll just name an action. You know, let's say that someone was getting hurt and you saved them. Is that automatically a good action? And they're all like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I say, okay, what if before you did it, you saw cameras rolling by and, and it was the news and you realized that if you acted in that moment that they were going to catch you on camera doing it. And so the whole motivation for you doing it was to get seen doing it so that you would be celebrated as a hero. I said, is that still a good action? And we think about that and kind of changes it, doesn't it? You see, because the action 
isn't really, doesn't tell the whole story. If it's not motivated by genuine love, if it's not motivated by a genuine concern for other people. But, so that's one problem that Paul's dealing with here. But there's another problem that he's dealing with as well, and that is this. Sometimes we highlight good aspects of our lives in order to cover bad aspects of our lives. And so we're morally inconsistent. And so, so we're not loving over here, but we kind of throw a bone to love over here. And we say, but look at what I did. So, you know, the wife says, I just don't feel like you're loving me right now. He said, I loaded the dishwasher last night. Paul's attacking this. You know, I've had, I've heard people my whole life in the church say things like, I just really don't like kids and I don't want anything to do with them. But I'll write a check to fund the kids ministry, okay? Like that does enough. Or you may have somebody say, well, I don't want to show up and be around those people, but I'll drop off food, you know, for the event. You see, you see, we can't cover hearts that are unloving by actions that we think that make up for it. Paul's attacking all of that. The point that he's making is that love is the energizing principle of everything that the church is supposed to do and everything that every member of the church is supposed to do. It is the one essential ingredient. Paul is not describing it as just an action that you check off the box once a week, like, oh, I love this week, did my thing. He says, no, love is a way of life. It is the Jesus way of life. Think about this with me, church. We here at Ashland Community Church, we really believe that right doctrine is important. We have a confession of faith that is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, and we hold that as our guide. It provides the guardrails for our interpretation of Scripture. And you've heard me stand here and argue in the past that our ability to love is dependent upon knowledge. It is dependent upon right doctrine. If you don't know who God is, how can you love him? If you don't know what God has done for you, how can you love others the way he has loved you? So there is a connection between all of these things. But there is also a danger, especially amongst people who take doctrine very seriously, where knowledge can become an end in and of itself. And so we pursue knowledge because we want to know more. And we pursue knowledge because knowledge is intoxicating. And we pursue knowledge because knowledge makes our heads explode. But listen to me, knowledge is never the end. Knowledge is always the means to an end. We pursue knowledge because knowledge is supposed to always lead us in the direction of love. We love God. We love our neighbor. We love one another. And if we ever get into a, a, a point in our lives where knowledge is an end in and of itself, listen, you will become prideful and you will become insufferable and no one else will want to be around you. Knowledge feeds love. It always feeds love. So go, listen, pursue knowledge, pursue truth, go to seminary, go to Bible studies, fill your mind up with all of that truth. But listen, you better have an outlet 
for that knowledge to lead you to getting on your knees and serving other people. That has to be there. That has to be present. That's what Paul's saying. That's his point. Because the Corinthians were so obsessed with these impressive gifts like tongues and prophecy. And so Paul's attacking that tendency. This, this call is a call for us to ask the question, why? And it's a good question for us on Sunday because some of us just, we get up and it's, it's our routine. That's a good thing, by the way. I love it when it's your routine to be here at 10 o'clock. Actually, let me back up. I love it when it's your routine to be here at 945. <laughs> so just get that on record. Not 1005, not 10. All right, I'm going to not go there. But the routine is good. But listen, all of us need at times to set, set back and say, why am I going there? Why am I serving in the nursery? Why am I on the music team? Why am I serving in front line? Why am I in the sound booth? Why am I going to BFG on Sunday afternoon when I'm tired? Because some of us, going to BFG on Sunday afternoon becomes this slavish thing. Oh, I know that they're going to ask me why I'm not there. I know, I know that those people, are, they're going to be disappointed if I don't go. And it becomes about people pleasing. And ministry is not supposed to be done from a heart of people pleasing. That is selfish. Ministry is supposed to be done from a heart of love. We show up to BFG. We show up to nursery. Listen, because God loves us us and we are called to love one another we show up when we're tired because we're committed to each other we show up on sunday at 9 45 because we're committed to these people here and my presence communicates i am committed to you we are committed to each other that's what a church is. We, we've got each other's backs. Church, that, that is what church does for you. But you have other people's backs. It's not just one way. You support each other. Love's indispensable. So what is love? Well, Paul's going to tell us that too. Love's character. So in verses three, or excuse me, in verses four through seven, Paul is going to point out two positive characteristics of love and eight negative characteristics of love. So in other words, he's going to tell you two things that love is, and he's going to tell you eight things that love isn't. And there's a reason for that. Usually when we speak in the negative, what, what does that mean? It means that we're addressing a problem. <laughs> And you, we already know from reading this letter together that all the things that Paul points out in those eight negative characteristics are things that Paul has already addressed in this church. Things that he's already called out. Behaviors that are problematic. But look at what he says first. He says, love is patient and kind. And I love that start because it reminds us of the, where love comes from. It is God who is patient and kind. We're only going to be patient and kind to the degree that we are connected to a God who is patient and kind. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
And you see there in that verse that patience and kindness kind of go together, don't they? We're patient relationally with one another. We're going to be kind to one another. It's kind of the opposite of what Paul says later when he says it's not irritable or resentful. Patient and kind is the positive of that negative. God has been revealing himself as patient and kind from the very beginning. In fact, when God told Moses, revealed his glory to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, you know, he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and his glory passes by. And this is what Moses heard from God. I'm merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the first part of what he heard. I'll say it again because it's repeated more than 27 times in the Bible. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. So so remember that we were created to image God, Because of our sin, we have failed to image God, but Jesus has died to save us and has been resurrected, has been raised to to bring us into newness of life so that we can again fulfill the calling for which we were made. We are to image God. We are to be perfect as God is perfect. God is patient and kind. We are redeemed in Christ. We are called to be patient and kind and to image God in this way. Oh, but it's so hard isn't it? It's so hard. You know why it's hard? Because by default, we are hardwired to focus on ourselves. If you don't believe me, just watch the way people drive. You know over here on this exit where they, all, they like to close the lane? Have you ever noticed how people love to get in that right lane and go as far up as possible and pass everybody? Does it drive you crazy too? Or think about this, why, and I'm going to ask you this because this should hit closer to home, why do we always try to park in the closest spot to Kroger as possible? Why? You don't even think about it, do you? You've probably never asked yourself why. So, so I don't have to walk as far. Well, some of you like, have disabilities, and you know, I understand that. But for most of us, I'm healthy. I can walk. I'm pain-free walking most of the time, unless I've played pickleball. <laughs> I, and I can walk for a long time, but I like to park closest to the front, too. Why? Because I am hardwired selfish. Because if I take that spot, guess who's not taking it? The elderly lady who might really need to park there, the pregnant lady who might really need to park there, the handicapped veteran who might need to park there, right? But, but I need it because I like to put myself first because that is how we're hardwired and it is not natural for us to come away from that. We, we do not want to die to self because there's no measurable gain If I park far away, what is my reward? Well, it's going to take more time. I have to walk further. It might be raining, right? But but Jesus is calling us to live differently. He's calling us to love. He's calling us to be patient and kind. You see here, and I just want to explain this, how love depends upon faith and hope. Think about this with me. If I park far away, I don't gain anything. Or do I? I don't gain anything measurable. I don't gain anything I can see. 
But the Bible tells me that God is the rewarder of of the actions that I have. The Bible tells me that in the end, in in, in the eschaton, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, in the end, all of those righteous deeds will be rewarded. So love depends upon faith, believing God's promises. It depends upon hope, hoping that God will fulfill his promises. Love, listen, locates my joy in the happiness of others. Instead, what we tend to do by default is we seek to advance my joy at the expense of others. Do you see the difference? Love says, I am going to find joy when you are happiest, right? Selfishness says, I am going to be joyful even if it means you're miserable. That's the difference. That's what it means to be patient and kind. Typical scenario, you come home, it's been a long day, you're tired and you're stressed. You get home, your house is wrecked because there are five of them and they don't do what they're supposed to do. And, and no one did what you asked. You told them to do the chores and none of them did it. And the, co- and the dog just peed on the floor again because no one took him out. And there's conflict brewing, right? Because some of them just can't get along. And then the final straw is it's nine o'clock and you're finally ready for bed because you're so weary. And one of them comes in and says, hey, dad, I have a project due tomorrow. I need to go to Walmart. And you know what I do in that situation? I usually lose it. I usually raise my voice and I say in the secular faith that I am hardwired to by default, you are going to pay for inconveniencing me. You are going to hear it all the way there. And what the Bible is calling us to do is to look at that situation the way God looks at us. To infuse that situation with the truth of the gospel. Yes, you've messed up. Yes, you've created chaos. But I've done that too. And if God treated me the way I deserve to be treated, I wouldn't be here right now. I would be under his judgment. But God is merciful to me. He is patient with me. He is kind towards me. And God saves me. And because of that, I am going to be patient with you right now. And I am going to be kind. Listen, I don't stand up here as some model. Don't even come to my kids and ask them at the end if, if how good I do at this. Because I, can, I promise you, I, we, are, we are all struggling with, with these principles. But this is still, listen, this is the call on our lives. This is the goal that we're pursuing. And this way of living is possible in Jesus. For all of us. But Paul doesn't stop there. Love does not envy or boast. This is dealing explicitly, explicitly with Corinthian problems. Envying and boasting go together because envying and boasting both view other people as competition. Either I envy them because I see them as having more than me, or I boast over them because I want to be seen as, as, as being higher and superior to them. Listen, church, if you can't celebrate the success of another person, you can't love that person. If you can't celebrate someone else's success, you can't love them. It is not arrogant 
or rude. This word for arrogant is a word Paul's used earlier. It means to be puffed up. When we view people arrogantly, we see them as objects in the way. They're, they're either going to help me get what I want, or they're going to hinder me. And so we use people. We're not serving people, we're using them. Love is patient, kind, love is not even your boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This gets to the very heart of what love is. This is what Jesus came to model for us because we read in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Where do we get this from? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus teaches us how to not insist on our own way. It is not irritable or resentful. We're not angry. We don't hold grudges. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is really, really important for us, church. Listen, because in our modern day, we equate love with affirmation. So, so right now, what, and you see this as a synonym, it's on churches all around Louisville. We are an affirming church. And you know what that means. Let me just translate that for you. An affirming church means that you can come in here in your sin, and we're not going to tell you that you're a sinner. And that is what love is. Love is when we just all get together and affirm everything that we do, even when what we're doing is wicked and brings shame upon the name of Christ. That is not what love is in the Bible. Paul tells us right here, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Are you loving your child parent when you allow your child to destroy him or herself and don't intervene? Is that love? Because unrighteousness is destructive. Homosexuality is destructive. Transgenderism is destructive. Sexual immorality is destructive. Hating people from other races is destructive. We do not stand idly by in the name of affirmation and say, yeah, that's fine because at least we love you because it's not love when we watch people destroy themselves. We speak the truth in love because we know that human flourishing is dependent upon obedience to God. Verse 7 Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sometimes 
I've, I've heard this verse interpreted as contradicting what he just said in verse 6. He says in verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then we get to verse 7, and we go, oh, see, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love's just a passive doormat, and we just let people run over us. That's not what he's saying. Do you know what he's saying in verse 7? He's saying this. He's saying love is tough. It is enduring. It persists. It gives people second chances. And it's not, listen, we're not giving people second chances because we believe in the goodness of humanity. We're giving people second chances because we believe that God may still be doing a miraculous supernatural work in their souls. And where would you be if you didn't get second chances? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have hope. Don't emotionalize love. Back in the 60s, some really smart dude wrote a book called Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in that book, he noticed that culture was undergoing a transition. He said, life meaning used to be based on shared communal commitments, and now people find meaning in life through individual fulfillment and personal freedom. He pointed this out in 1966. We are now over 50 years a field of a transition in culture where we find life meaning in individual fulfillment and personal freedom. And I want you to know, church, that that transition has completely turned our definition of love upside down and made love the opposite of what love really is. Love in the Bible, and if you're a note taker, write this down because it's really important. Love in the Bible is covenantal commitment. All of these actions are in the, in the form, they come in the context of people who are covenantally committed to one another. I am committed to you. When an engaged couple comes into my office and says, Pastor Casey, will you do premarital counseling? I don't ask them anymore, do you love each other? And the reason I don't ask that question is because they don't have any idea if they love each other yet. You love one another when you commit to one another, and then life starts happening, and 10 years down the road, you're still committed to one another. You love each other when you're patient with one another, and you're kind with one another. You love each other through trials. You love each other through tests. You love each other through temptations. Love is proven at the end. God doesn't say, I love you, and that means I have these real fulfilling feelings towards you. God says, I love you, therefore I sent my son to die for you. That's what love is. It's the habit of putting the good of another before myself. These days we say, well, does he fulfill you? Does she make you feel good? And what are we saying when we ask those questions? We're saying, are you getting enough? Are you receiving and church, that's the opposite of what love is because love isn't about receiving, it's about giving. It's about pouring ourselves out for another person. It's about even being willing to die for another person. It is about a husband who is tired because he's not sleeping, but he wants to provide for his family. And so he gets up every day at the same time and he goes to a job that he doesn't like and he does it because he wants to take care of his family. 
It is about a wife at home laboring day after day with kids running around thinking, oh my word, I'm going to pull all my hair out, but she keeps doing it because she is committed to these people. And there's all kinds of other versions. I mean, I know I say those two, and you're like, well, that's pretty stereotypical. Well, the wife can be going to work too. And the husband's caring for the children too. But listen, love is about putting the other person in front of yourself. That's fundamentally what it's about. And we learn how to do that in Christ. We learn how to do that by recognizing how much God loves us. Finally, love's durability. Verses 8 through 13. This is going to be quick. Paul says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known We could spend a lot of time on that, but we're not today. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And what Paul's doing with all of this is he's saying, when Jesus returns, these gifts of knowledge that this church is putting all the emphasis on, when Jesus returns, you're not even going to need them anymore because you're going to see Jesus face to face. There's going to come a day where you're not going to need your faith anymore. There's going to come a day when you're not going to need your hope anymore because Jesus is going to be standing right in front of you. But you're still going to need your love because you're going to bow down at His feet and then you are going to worship, and we are going to love each other for all eternity. These gifts won't be necessary when Jesus returns. That's Paul's point. And he uses two illustrations. He says the first one's childhood. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And so that's the, the transition that Paul's marking. There's, when Jesus returns, you won't be a child anymore. You're going to be a grown-up, and you're not going to need childish things anymore. And we know how inappropriate it is for a child or for an adult to act like a child. If you don't believe me, just watch Andy Bernard in the office where he does baby talk. And you're like, oh, don't talk like that. I think I wrote it down. I had to look it up on YouTube. Yeah, he says, Andy is a whittle scaled. You hear me say that. Nikki and I like make fun of that show and we talk like that sometimes, but then like if guests come over, I'm like, quit, nah, don't talk like that. <laughs> it is inappropriate for a child to talk that for an adult to talk that way. Paul says it's inappropriate for an adult to continue to put emphasis on all of these things that you're not going to need in the future. You need to put emphasis on love. And then he uses the analogy of a mirror. For now we see in a mirror dimly, which is it's really cool because in Corinth, this is where they manufactured mirrors. And so Paul is pointing out a trade that probably people in this congregation participated in. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, church, we can't see everything clearly, but one day we will. Now I know in part, but then I'm going to know fully, even as I have been fully known. The one that endures forever is love. Faith and hope, as great as they are now, they're not going to be needed when Jesus returns. And so to wrap it up, listen. 
the wrong way to respond to 1 Corinthians 13. The wrong way is to begin looking around the room and thinking about how everyone else falls short. I wish people loved the way they're supposed to love around here. I needed to move a couple weeks ago and nobody showed up to help. You see, that's the wrong way. That goes against everything that the Bible is teaching us about love. We have this thing in culture where we like to tell people that we want to be loved, and then we tell them how they're supposed to love us. And that's just not the way it works. The Bible is calling us to lay our lives down, and that is the only way any of us can validly walk away from this passage. We have to be asking ourselves, how can I follow Jesus by loving these people? And let me tell you, just a tip to get you started. Love starts with attention. If you're not paying intentional attention to people in the church, you can't love them. You have to know them. And one of the things that, is, that Jesus was masterful at was paying attention to people. Going out of his way to the woman at the well in John 4. So that he could hear her and see her and let her know that he was going to give her his attention. Marriages, listen, husbands, your wife will feel loved when you give your wife attention. Jeremy said this during our marriage conference yesterday. Prioritize your marriage. Make it the number one priority. Make your spouse higher on your priority list than your children. Attention. You're called to love your wife. You're called to love your husband. Start with attention. Church, let's give each other attention. Let's listen. Let's know so that we can follow Jesus and so that we can bless. Faith, hope, and love abide these three But the greatest of these, church, is love. Let's pray together.